If you would, turn with me this morning to Mark chapter 10. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 16. Mark 10, 1 through 16. This is an important passage, particularly as we understand one of the most important things in life, and that's marriage. I would like to suggest, I don't often do this, I would like to suggest, especially those who might be leading a study this week on this topic, you might consider getting your pens out and taking some notes because there are some important things in this passage. We in our culture are told that we should search for our soulmate. Hollywood and the new paganism have promoted this concept beyond the definition of marriage and beyond the boundaries of marriage. In fact, culture tells us that self-love triumphs over all. Not the love of another, but the love that satisfies yourself. But this is not the way of the holy triune God. In this passage, Jesus gives us some harsh teaching. In fact, so strict on this measure, it surprised even his disciples. Follow along as I read Jesus' teaching on divorce, and then one little section on children. Jesus left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And the Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. So we consider this portion of God's word. Let us bow briefly in prayer. Lord, it's not just the world out there that needs to hear these words. For Lord, if they are not trusting in you, they will not believe them. But Lord, we need to hear these words. For, Lord, you call us to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Help us, Lord, in these truths to learn, to grow, to have ears that hear them and hearts that understand them, that we might apply them to our everyday lives. I pray, Lord, that the things spoken here would be consistent with your word or else pass away, never to be heard from again. In Jesus' name, amen. In 1969... Then-Governor of California, Ronald Reagan, committed what he later claimed to be the greatest political mistake of his life. 
He signed the so-called Family Law Act, which permitted what is now known as no-fault divorce. It rapidly spread throughout the land so that California became the first of all 50 states that now have no-fault divorce laws. From the years 1960 to 1980, the divorce rate more than doubled. Children and families of divorced parents went from 11% of the children's population to more than half in 20 years. Now, of course, you know that the situation is even more dire. We are told that some segments of the population, as many as two-thirds of our children, do not grow up in a two-parent home. We're under the circumstances in which the attacks on the family and particularly attacks on marriage have resulted in a chaos that will lead our country perhaps to bankruptcy and perhaps to despair and chaos. A husband or wife under such a no-fault divorce law can for no reason or any reason file for divorce. We are told by those who study such things that broken families is the number one cause of poverty. Not the lack of money, not welfare situations, not what government can do or what communities can do, but broken marriages and people who refuse to marry and other situations in which children grow up in these homes. We're also told that the number one most dangerous situation in which a policeman enters is one in which there are home disturbances. And these divorce rates and these attacks on family have only aggravated these situations. We have a mess. Some studies tell us that the church is no different. I beg to differ. I would say the true church is different. The church, those who proclaim to be Christians but do not proclaim the truth from the pulpits, are no different than the world around us. But in my experience as a pastor, the divorce rates in conservative churches I've served has been very low. That's not to commend us. That's not to commend anyone on these matters. It's just a reminder of how serious marriage and divorce is. In this passage, of course, it begins with the trap that the Pharisees are setting for Jesus. And then he proclaims the truth about this situation. But there's also here a tragedy that's involved. And then we'll conclude this portion of scripture as we look briefly at verses 13 through 16 and the touch of Jesus. First of all, the trap. Here's a trap they're traveling. Remember, by this point, all of the ministry, for the most part, has has occurred basically in the region of Galilee and that area. From this point through the rest of the book, Mark has determined that he will focus on the journey to Jerusalem and the crucifixion of Jesus. Now, it's not necessarily completely chronological. Luke especially reminds us that there was ministry in other parts during this time period as well. But Mark, for these reasons, has it divided up into Galilean ministry and ministry on the way to Jerusalem. So now they're in Judea, even on the east side of the Jordan. And we see that wherever Jesus goes, there are those individuals, likely some of them from Jerusalem and from the established religious leaders, but also in the different communities, those who want to trap him. Uh, That is, to set him up 
so that he could say something which would basically alleviate the idea that he really was someone who was a great teacher or was consistent with the law or had come from God. And so here is the trap. Here are these Pharisees who have come in an order, it says, to test him. The Pharisees are testing him. They're seeing if what he knows about this topic is really consistent with God's law. Remember, the Pharisees are people who study the law. They try to follow it. They are some of the most moral and upstanding people of their society. Jesus himself says about the Pharisees, your righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees in order to inherit the kingdom of heaven. So these are very righteous people, at least in their own eyes. They try their best to be moral individuals. They know God's law. And this area of divorce, like any era of history, is touchy when it comes to society, isn't it? And so they ask him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What a test. They're going to see what he knows about the Old Testament law and what his opinion is about it, and if it is either stricter than the law or if it's looser than the law. And remember, this, these are matters of the law. They have already tested him on categories like the Sabbath or cleanliness or other things like that. If you were playing a Jeopardy game, this would be the next category. It would be divorce and remarriage. But the other thing to understand, why now, why at this particular point in time are they addressing this particular topic? On one hand, it is a testament. It might have had nothing to do with the, the place of where they were. You see, they were on the other side of the Jordan here, and on that side was a district ruled by Herod Antipas. If you know your history, you know that John the Baptist had criticized Herod Antipas for his marriage. In fact, his wife, Herodias, had come from another brother of Herod Antipas, and she had deserted him. In fact, there's no record that she actually filed for divorce under Roman law. She could have under Roman law. The Jews did not permit women to file for divorce. But she abandoned her husband, the brother of Herod, and they got married, Herod Antipas and Herodias and John the Baptist, both because of the closeness of the situation. It was not permitted in the law for someone to marry their sister-in-law, but also it was not permitted to do this type of arranging desertion and remarriage and so forth. It was unbiblical. And of course, what did Herod do with John the Baptist? He had him arrested. And then after a while, his wife encouraged her uh, daughter to come and uh, ask for John the Baptist's head and Herod had John the Baptist executed. So here they are in that area. Perhaps since we know the Herodians and the Pharisees, according to Mark, are working together. We'll see that again in chapter 12. It could have been an indication here, hey, we're going to go test this guy. We're now in Herod's region. So the testing is both on matters of the law and could also be on political matters trying to get him in trouble with Herod. But you have to know the background. Here is the Pharisees' debate. You see, this is all about Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. In the insert in your bulletin, it's printed out there for you. 
You see, in the law, this is the only place in the first five books of the Bible that gives us any idea of the practical consequences or the legal idea of divorce. Here's what it says. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of, her ha out of his house, or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then the former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Now, first of all, notice here it doesn't say everybody should go out there and divorce your spouse. It doesn't say that. It says here, that there is an occasion where someone might have divorced his wife because of some indecency in her. Now, remember, in this time and in this situation, this is not where a woman has filed for divorce. This is a man. And we, the, the, the debate among the Jewish people was what it meant that there was indecency in the woman. And so there were two schools. The Hillel school said this, they were liberal on the issue, and they said a man could then write this certificate of divorce for any reason of displeasure. In fact, some of the Pharisees, some of the scribes in this category would say, even if you didn't like the way she cooked your breakfast. And there was one scribe that even said, rose to the level of said, if a husband finds a woman better looking, any reason of indecency in her. This was the liberal view from the Hillel school of scribal teaching. The Shammai school, however, was conservative. They said it should only have been a matter of indecency, that is, sexual immorality that would not quite rise to the level of adultery. And the reason why it would not quite rise to the level of adultery is this. Adulterers were to be stoned. So in other words, if there was any kind of sexual immorality, indecent exposure, sexual relationships before or after uh, the marriage, the outside your marriage union of any sort, these types of things would rise to the level of the ability for a husband to file for divorce. This was the debate. And of course, this was the trap that they set for Jesus. They're trying to see which school Jesus might follow and if he followed either too strictly or too loosely, then they could catch him and say, there, you see, you don't understand the law of Moses. Doesn't this really sound like the traps that God does, or that, uh, that Satan does, rather? If this is the same kind of thing that happened in the Garden of Eden. When Satan approached Eve, he said, did God really say? And what these Pharisees have done, like Satan, is they take a truth in Scripture, a truth in this case, about the consequences, what to do when there's a broken marriage. Notice it doesn't give all the details about if this happens, you need to do this. If that happens, you need to do this. It says, when someone has done this, here is the law for that situation. But the Pharisees are using that 
technique that Satan developed so well in the garden to trap Jesus to try and get him to say something about the situation. In fact, all Jesus really has to do is say, here is what God said. And in a way, that's what he does. Beginning at verse 3, he says, what did Moses command you? In other words, what is the scriptural law? Remember, this section of scripture in the law in the first five books of the Bible in Deuteronomy 24 is the only law on divorce in the whole Torah. Now, there are other places where it mentions divorce. In fact, priests were not supposed to marry divorced women, for example. So here is a situation where there's only one place they can turn to really get this situation. But notice how he says this. What did Moses command you? Notice their answer. Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce. In other words, it's not a command to divorce. It's a permission. In certain circumstances, Moses permitted, according to the law of God, revealed to him by God's spirit, by God's power, permitted men to divorce their wives. So the scriptural law is not a command here, but a permission. But it's even less than that in one sense, because here's what Jesus says. He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote to you this commandment. In other words, the hardness of their heart made it so that he had to address the topic of divorce. It was not something that God designed in creation. It was not something God wants for his people. It is abnormal. It should be the last resort. It should not be something that is frequent or common. He says it's because of the hardness of your heart that here it's not an imperative or a commandment. It's not a permission. It's actually a concession. It's actually realizing you guys are such sinful people. And, of course, you guys, meaning everybody that walks the face of the earth, but particularly the Israelites here in this particular portion of Scripture, he says, you guys are so sinful that Moses had to address this topic and had to allow that in certain circumstances this would take place. It's a concession. It's basically how to deal with the consequences of breaking the law. Because here's the original intent. He doesn't just refer to Deuteronomy, as they do. He goes before the law was given to Moses on Mount Sinai. In other words, here are these scribes so focused on the law of Moses that perhaps they're not thinking about the fact that marriage is embedded in the creation account. So here's what he says. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. And then he adds this, What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. 
So here is the original intent. These are two quotes. One is from Genesis 1.27, the other is from Genesis 2.24, the first two chapters of the Bible. The first one, Genesis 1.27, reminds us of the creation of man. And here he says, he made them male and female. Now, about 10 years ago, I wouldn't want to stress anything else about this verse, but in case you're wondering, this verse is true. It's as true today as it was true back in the days of creation. There are two categories of people, male and female. Secondly, it's a reminder here that marriage is God's design for man and woman when they enter into that relationship. Genesis 2.24 says there is a permanence there. Now, there's not an eternal permanence, but there's a lifelong permanence. After all, those words that we use in a wedding ceremony that says, till death do us part. We don't just say that because it sounds good. We don't just do that because we like the idea of it. We say that because that is the intent behind marriage. Marriage is not meant to be a temporary solution to life's problems, to loneliness or depression or despair. It's meant to be lifelong. It's God's creation principle, till death do us part. And of course, here is a reminder of God's intent. First of all, there's a sense here of his presence in this unity. His presence and authority in it. The authority behind marriage is not the state. The authority behind the marriage is not a pastor. The authority behind marriage is God himself. He is the authority behind marriage. He instituted it. It is his creation. It is for the good of all mankind. Also, here is recognizing his presence. Because after all, these people were created, male and female, in his image. In other words, even in this marriage relationship, they are supposed to reflect the person and character of God. And of course, we know that as well, even Paul in the New Testament refers to the relationship God has with the church and says this is just like the marriage relationship, or rather the marriage relationship should be just like the relationship God has with the church. So there is a sense here of God's intent being he is in this institution of marriage that he created and that is from his power for our good. But the other thing that's so important here is this. When he says that two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two but one flesh, and Jesus gives his interpretation of this situation of marriage by saying these words, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. You see, it's not just an ideal that a man and a woman become one in marriage. It's an ontological reality. God doesn't say the intent behind marriage is to become one. He says in Genesis 2.24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. 
In other words, every time someone enters into a marriage by design, God places them together in such a way that the two in certain ways and in certain uh, things that are beyond our understanding become one. And any time that that union is broken by anything but death, that is trying to separate what God put together. That's how serious divorce is. That's how serious adultery is. That's how serious all this brokenness around us. And in fact, I hate to use the word brokenness because the word is really sin. That's the consequences of sin. It takes something that God has glued together and has ripped it apart in such a way that there are effects that cannot be put back together again. I look at it this way. If you know somebody that's having some financial difficulties and he makes a big purchase, maybe he buys a car. Maybe he buys a car and he owes a bunch of money, he's going to pay it off in five years or more. Used to be five years, now you can get seven, eight, nine year loans, whatever, for cars. And he might say to you, ideally, I'm going to pay off my loan. Ideally. The problem is this. When you purchase something, the way it's supposed to work is the ontological reality of that purchase is that when you buy that car, you have entered into a binding legal agreement to pay for that car and for the products or services rendered. And if you don't do that, you're breaking the law because you've entered into that commitment. Now, in our day, in our society, we don't have debtor's prisons. We don't send people to jail for not paying their bills. But that used to be the case in almost all of the rest of history, in almost every society up until the last couple hundred years here. And so here it is. This ontological reality is you owe this money, and if you don't pay it, there are consequences. The ontological reality of marriage is you are bound to that person because God made you bound. And if you break that commitment, there are some consequences. In fact, here, the two became one. But here's the tragedy of the whole thing. You know, here, we don't get the exception clause even. Matthew gives us the exception clause. Matthew 19 as well as Matthew 5. Luke also uh, is like Mark here. He doesn't uh, give the exception clause. Uh, but here is the exception clause and all the things that take place. What is it that he is teaching here about marriage? Is it true then that Jesus completely forbid divorce in every circumstance? That's what it sounds like. And the disciples hear this. They're so shocked at what Jesus has taught that they say, can we talk about this? The house In the house, the disciples asked him about this matter again. And he said to them, hear these words. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. The tragedy is this. Divorce and implied here remarriage always results in adultery. If you've been divorced and remarried, according to Scripture and God's law, you have 
committed adultery. That's an ontological reality because what God put together, man has separated. Even if you have the grounds for a biblical divorce, the ontological reality is that situation where there is a bonding that has been broken and another bond put together is ontologically because of sin. Now, I know that here in this circumstance, we do look back to the exception clause. We'll get to that in a minute here. But it's interesting the certificate for divorce would read these things. In fact, the certificate here was not in order to gain the divorce. In the proceeding here, it was just the man who would issue the certificate to his wife. He wouldn't go to court. You know, he would hopefully uh, be uh, under the authority or discipline of the religious leaders of his community and all those types of things, but evidently he would just issue this. And really, this issue in Deuteronomy 24 was for the safety of the woman and the freedom. In fact, this divorce would read this, it simply would say, you are free to marry any man to the wife. In other words, it was giving her permission to leave that marriage and to marry another man. But Jesus here says, even if they follow that detail that's described in Deuteronomy 24, we have to understand that this involves sin. Now, there are exceptions to the cause, and here are these exceptions, Matthew 5.32 and Matthew 19.9. In fact, if you were to turn there, this is the parallel passage uh, to uh, our passage today. So Matthew chapter 19, verse 9 says this, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. Now, why that exception? Well, Jesus had to make an understanding of what the culture around them had been. They now lived under Roman rule. They did not have the authority to carry out the death penalty. And they hadn't for some time done that. What had happened before was, if uh, in a marriage a man and a woman had uh, committed adultery, then both of them were to be stoned to death. That's back in Leviticus. So that circumstance wasn't supposed to really still exist if they had perfectly followed God's law. But because that's not the case, now there are people who do still live, and they've committed this adultery, and so now what happens? In that case then, since they're not dead, God is permitting them, according to Christ in Matthew as well, uh, chapter 5 and chapter 19, he will permit them to divorce. But that doesn't mean ontologically there's not sin in these relationships, even if there's a permission here. It's interesting that the word indecent, again, this is the word that is used both in Deuteronomy here and even in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, this word indecent, the root here is the word nakedness. In other words, anything that is unacceptable in a sexual content before God is indecent. And here's a reminder, this immorality is the Greek word porneia. You might recognize where that word leads to. It may, means the whole range of immorality, from sexual relationships before marriage to relationships with forbidden unions, man to man, woman to woman, man or woman to beast, those types of things, any adulterous relationship, any 
forbidden sexual relationship. That means any sexual activity outside the marriage between one man and one woman is forbidden. And here it says, in that one circumstance, there may be reason or biblical grounds for divorce because in the case of the Old Testament, originally it was designed to stone to death those individuals who did those things so that they would not pollute the rest of the society. But here, we don't stone people anymore. I'm not advocating that we stone people anymore. If we did, we, we would probably all be stoned because we find some place in the Old Testament where it would say, hey, there's a circumstance where you should be stoned to death. But it should remind us of the serious nature of immorality and the serious nature of the institution of marriage. The other exception is this. There's a new phenomenon that occurs in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, the law was given to Israel, and all of them, if they were following the law, were circumcised, and this was the mark of the covenant upon them. And so all of them, in that sense, were in what was the Old Testament church of the day. And so all of them were under the same laws and under the same things. Now, they were supposed to be circumcised of heart as well as physically circumcised. However, in the New Testament, you have this new phenomenon because people outside that covenant are coming in to Israel. They are believing upon Jesus Christ, and so this is a new thing. When they are baptized because they actually believe in Jesus, when they, that circumstance comes, then what happened was there were some marriages where one spouse came and believed and was baptized, and another spouse did not believe. And rejected that. So now Paul says there's another situation that's an exception, and that's desertion of an unbeliever. In 1 Corinthians 7, it says to all those in the church who have an unbelieving spouse, if your unbelieving spouse will live with you, stay with them. That's hard. Because right away, this is perhaps one of the greatest causes for problems in a relationship. One person believes in Christ and the other person doesn't. And it's hard to stay in that relationship because you're going two different directions. You're not only going two different directions eternally, you're going two different directions because one wants to walk with Jesus and the other doesn't. But marriage is so important that Paul reminds us God's design because even in that situation, these two have become one. And as long as that unbelieving spouse will live with you, you must stay with them. But if they will not, let them go. In that case, the unbelieving spouse has severed the relationship. Man has put asunder what God has put together. You know, in our day, they talk about divorce as if it's just as simple as pie. Now you can do a do-it-yourself divorce. In fact, you talk, uh, talk about uh, mutual divorces or uncontested or agreeable divorces. And you hear the advertisements on the radio, if you're getting divorced and it's agreeable and you don't have all these things that we have to worry about from a legal perspective, it's easy peasy. Just come to our law office and we'll get all the documents signed. But there's no such thing in God's eyes. Every divorce is disagreeable. Every broken relationship 
in the marriage compartment is sinful. There's sin involved and its consequences. Every divorce is a consequence of sin of one sort or another. Yes, I know there might be one party that's more responsible than the other. It might be a matter of not only adultery, but abuse or all kinds of other things. In fact, if we go back to Ronald Reagan in 1969, perhaps he had on his mind as he signed the no-fault divorce law that his own first wife cited him for mental cruelty so that she could get the divorce in the state of California before the no-fault divorce laws. But here's a reminder. Every divorce is a consequence of sin of some sort or another. And it's against, it says here, this remarriage, particularly when it's not a biblically grounded divorce because of adultery or desertion, that remarriage is actually sinning against that previous spouse. Here's the unchanging truth about this. Marriage is serious. How can we just, as a society, gloss over it and say it doesn't matter whether or not you enter into a marriage? And when you enter into a marriage, it doesn't matter whether it's separated. And don't worry about it. You can just have one wife after another. Have you ever sat down and looked at the Hollywood actors that you enjoy on a regular basis? And you'll look at the list, and they've had four, five, six different spouses. And the one they're living in a relationship with now is not their spouse. And you have all these people bowing down to them as celebrities because they're such wonderful people. And they may even be philanthropic. How great. But the basic building block of society They've broken again and again and again and thrown it at God in complete disregard for God's basic building block of society. And our children suffer. And our church often is silent. But it doesn't end there. Evidently, while they were talking to Jesus... There were some family members, either some parents or some older siblings or somebody that brought some children to Jesus. And the disciples, they were busy. They were talking to Jesus about divorce. They didn't want to deal with these children. And they understood Jesus had so much to do, whatever it was. I don't know their reasoning for why they were turning them away, but they, they rebuked them. Don't bring those children in here. We've got something else going on. Jesus needs rest, whatever it is. But when Jesus saw it, what did he do? He got angry. He was indignant. He got angry. He said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belong the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. First of all, he says, the kingdom is for children. Now I wish I could say that means every child up to a certain age will be in heaven if they die before. Uh, so I, I can't say that. Scripture doesn't say that. Um, you know, the, the, the reformers, the, the people who put together our standards, the Westminster Confession of Faith and Catechism kind of punted it. They just said, you know, all the elect children will be in heaven. And I've studied it. I've looked at scripture. I want to say that, that all children who die in infancy will be, go to heaven. I, I don't know that. I'm convinced that children of believers will because of 
uh, different scriptures regarding David in the Old Testament and regarding marriage in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 7. But I will say this. He's saying, these children, to them belongs the kingdom of God. What is it about these children? There's all kinds of ideas. I tend to think one of them is because they're the lowest of the low. They had no rights, they had no privileges in the society around them. They were the ones who were considered having no rights whatsoever. It's so different from our society, we spoil our kids. They were nothing. They didn't even have the rights and privileges of some slaves. They were nothing, but Jesus says, let them come. The other thing about it is, it says, the kingdom is for those who are like children. So what is it about children that we must be like? Then again, there's all kinds of debate as to what this means. It doesn't mean that we all have to somehow become younger and don't have wrinkles and white hair anymore. It means this, there's a fresh realization here of our helplessness before God. These children were totally dependent. In fact, these children that were with him, it indicates these are very young children, both by the language that's used and the fact that he's able to take them in his arms. And so here it is, they are helpless before God. Because they are so needy and dependent upon God for salvation, we must be like that too. There's no way we can earn it. We must be completely dependent upon God for salvation. I, 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 I'm willing to, to bet here, I, I'm not a betting person, but I'm willing to bet here that there are some people in this room who have been divorced. Let me tell you, there's no hope for your sin except in Jesus Christ. In Jesus, your sins can be forgiven. But you are totally dependent upon him for this grace of forgiveness because you broke a relationship in the past or your spouse broke a relationship in the past. Even if you have committed serial sins, that is, you have continuously married and divorced and married again and committed that series of sins, every one of those being a sin in and of itself, even if you have done this, God can forgive you. So these children will now openly and confidently receive the attention and touch of the Savior as a gift. So must we. I want to tell you, this, this idea of marriage is, is very serious. You know, it, it's not just serious because we enter into this arrangement. You know, now, now if you watch a TV show, uh, you know, they're moving in together before they get married. Why have we allowed that? Where are the fathers? Where are the fathers telling this potential whatever he is, don't touch my daughter? It's a serious thing. Because once they do these types of things, there are things that God does in that situation where he bonds them together. And if they haven't even asked your permission to get married, why are they going to take your daughter? You know, I can't imagine what I would do if someone tried to take my daughter without my permission and move her into their house. I'm going to go do something about it and say something to that guy. I might not be able to stop it. My daughter's a grown woman now. But I don't want that to happen, and that indignation needs to take place. But at the other hand, the same thing is to understand God's grace. God's grace is greater than my sin. 
just as we as children will receive the gifts of our parents with confidence and we will lovingly receive the warmth of our parents, so too we understand even if we are those grubby children who committed all these sins in the past, we come to the Father recognizing we are totally dependent upon him for grace in this life and we receive that as a gift. And that's why in the church, even those who have been in these situations, we welcome with open arms and we say, God's grace is greater than my sin, so it is for yours. You see, it changes the world if we understand the truth about holiness, but we also understand the truth about grace. While we really wonder how God can graciously forgive even the terrible sins of faithlessness and adultery, yet we stand on his model for life. If you want to know what this church believes about marriage and divorce, read the Bible. That's what we believe. The Bible teaches there is only one proper sexual relationship in life, and that's between one man and one woman. All this nonsense about trying to be somebody that you're not, all this nonsense about approving any type of relationship because it's more loving than telling them they're wrong, is misunderstanding the fact that if they don't repent of these sins, they will go to hell. But if they do repent of these sins, God will forgive them. And God will give them grace and will see them in heaven. What a wonderful thing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these teachings. We need to hear it. I know I do as a pastor. It's so tempting to just say, it's okay, do what you want. It's so tempting sometimes, Father, not to address the things that are, seem harsh in our society. I, Lord, imagine that some of the things said here were to get out on the internet in certain ways and other people discovered it, they might not be there anymore. But, Lord, let this word go out with boldness and grace that the world might know your intentions, they might know the truth, and they might know your love for the church. We pray all these things in Jesus' name.